Welcome to In the Envelope, a podcast from Backstage, the number one resource for actors and talent seekers. I am your host, Jack Smart, awards editor at Backstage, and I'm here to guide you through every aspect of the entertainment industry with the help of some of your favorite stars. These intimate, inspirational conversations with today's most award-worthy film, television, and theater artists provide you, dear listener, advice on how to live the creative life, personal stories of success and failure alike, and maybe, just maybe, a tantalizing glimpse in the envelope. I'm very encouraging of embracing limits and if you don't have that many limits self-imposing them so that you can beat against those walls and, and find that as an inspiration to be to be creative it really it really has worked for me welcome listeners to another episode of in the envelope this is your host jack smart as always I'm so excited about today's episode. The voice you just heard is Mark Duplass. Listen, here's the thing. In addition to Mark being an excellent filmmaker, uh, writer, producer, sometimes director, film and TV, he's he's a terrific actor, and we were able to talk about one of the few projects on his resume where he's only an actor and not those other things, which is Apple TV Plus's The Morning Show. But the thing about Mark Duplass, the reason I'm so excited to have him on the podcast today, is that Mark Duplass is very good at explaining how he does those things. He's an excellent interviewee. Backstage has talked to him a lot. I've talked to him before. He is good at explaining not only his story, but how his breakthrough of success in the indie film industry can be yours too. I asked him about his writing process. Even if your writing process doesn't resemble his at all, there's a ton to get out of this interview. He explains writer's block. He just explains. This is what writer's block is to him. It's amazing. If you are living through this global pandemic, as we all are, whether you've never written a word or you're a seasoned screenwriter, you got to listen to this interview. It's amazing. Just a little background. Mark and Jay Duplass, friend of the podcast, Jay Duplass, uh, in one of our earliest, earliest episodes, Um, The two of them have made a name for themselves creating super, super low-budget indie film ever since their Sundance Film Festival short called This Is John, which you can watch on YouTube, just blew up. And they have sort of created a new movement in indie filmmaking in the early 2000s. Some people have labeled that as the genre mumblecore, referring to the very naturalistic, almost improvisational dialogue. That's something that Mark never quite set out to do. And he certainly didn't mean to be this guru of indie filmmaking, but he is. And we are so thrilled to include him today because he has very specific, very, very valuable advice for anyone who's looking to be involved in filmmaking, especially on the indie side. So I'm going to shut up and get to it. Um, Although first, I have to also mention Mark Duplass marks our 100th podcast guest. So thank you, Mark, and thank you to the team at Backstage for helping facilitate 100 interviews. I am flabbergasted by that number, and here is to 100 more. And um, thank you, as always, for listening, truly, from the bottom of this humble host's heart here in my swelteringly hot closet. Thank you for joining us. 
And now let's take a quick break and then get to this terrific interview with Mark Duplass. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Apple TV Plus original series, The Morning Show. This drama series explores the cutthroat world of morning news and the lives of the people who help America wake up in the morning, told through the lens of two complicated women working to navigate the minefield of high-octane jobs while facing crises in both their personal and professional lives. Starring Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell, Billy Crudup, Gugu Mbatha-Ra, and Mark Duplass. For your Emmy consideration in all eligible categories, including Outstanding Drama Series, visit fyc.appletvplus.com. Film and TV producer, writer, director, musician, and actor Mark Duplass has made a name for himself in super low budget, highly naturalistic, independent projects and forged a path for other aspiring filmmakers to do the same. He and Jay Duplass's production company, Duplass Brothers Productions, has brought trailblazing indies to the screen, including The Puffy Chair, Baghead, Safety Not Guaranteed, The One I Love, Creep, and more recently, HBO's Room 104 and Netflix's Paddleton and Horse Girl. Mark has acted on The League, Togetherness, Goliath, and now Apple TV Plus's hit drama, The Morning Show. Here it is, a crash course in indie filmmaking from Mark Duplass. Mark, thank you. Hi. Hiya. So thank you so much for joining us on Backstage's podcast. How how are you these days? Um, I'm doing quite well, actually. Thank you for asking. Um, we got Good. some nice remote schooling going on here with the kids, and uh, I am writing quite mm-hmm. a bit using some of the downtime uh, afforded me with uh, this crazy situation. And um, obviously, yes. uh, for me, being in a non-essential worker uh, place where I can stay mm-hmm. home and I can afford to stay home, I'm I'm one of the uh, the privileged uh, group who you know, is not so sure. deeply affected by this in any critical ways. So this we're, we're, we're right. lucky. And, uh, I'm very aware of that. Well, and I mean, knowing you, I'm sure you have plenty, like how many projects are in the works right now? Have you started new stuff? Are you working on old stuff? We've got a ton of shit that's like still going, uh, in post-production. And a lot mm-hmm. of those are oh, okay. things like documentary series, which we can still function on. Cause it's just, you know, a couple of people in their computers and, and we've 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 shut down our offices completely, but people have gone home with the edit machines to do the things that they want to do, uh, and so that stuff is is still pretty functional. Um, then there were things that were more in pre-production mode, and obviously we don't know when we'll be able to safely return to mm-hmm. to shooting in all its various forms, and and those things are on hold and. And then there are other projects that I'm a part of that I don't produce, you know, um, things like the morning mm. show that I'm just an actor on, which we were we right. were right in the middle of production um, when this all happened. And so we've, we've temporarily Crazy. shut down and and I don't know when we'll get back to that kind of stuff, honestly. Right. How much of season two was completed? Um, we we cross board some episodes. So sometimes you're shooting two or three at a time. Um, I, we were, we were right around the end of episode two ish. Um, when I, uh, 
that's stuff that I was shooting when they shut down. Um, I think they might have shot some stuff in three. I'm not sure if everything in one and two is is done, but uh, hmm. I'd say we're about fifteen to twenty percent complete, maybe. Okay. So we got a way. We got a ways to go. We really have been. I mean, on this podcast, more and more. Of course, we're all about the advice for early career. Yeah. Uh, artists of all kinds. And I, I feel like these days we got to tailor the question more. Cause like you mentioned, you're writing a lot. Has your routine changed at all? Like your sit down to write routine has changed because of this new. Yeah, moment? it has. And I think it's, uh, you know, there are, uh, there's a little bit of a church and state between parents and non-parents um, in terms of what your routine is. Oh. You know, um, I, I find myself in the very fortunate club to have kids who are eight to 12 who can handle themselves pretty well. So my wife, Katie, and I have to do some uh, help with them, getting them set up and 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 doing, you know, doing some remote schooling, tutoring for our kids and things like that. But basically, we're not in the group that has, you know, like my good friend, Patrick Bryce, that I collaborate with on a bunch of things like Creep and The Overnight. He's got a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and they're really like, Ooh. they're really in it, you know, just full-time job trying yeah. to keep their kids from going crazy. And they should be all knighted as far as I'm concerned, what they're dealing with right now. Yeah. Um, and, but then there are other people, you know, who don't have kids at all. And I think they have weirdly found themselves kind of creatively paralyzed in this time, just kind of trying to get okay. through it, you know? Um, so sometimes I think that yeah. having a little bit of the structure of my life that I have to give a certain amount of time to homeschooling my kids and keeping our house together yeah. Um, it has made my free hours a little bit more sacred to me. And so, you know, the first, I guess the first four to six weeks of this whole pandemic, I would get about three hours a day to write set aside plus or minus uh, an hour. And mm -hmm. that made it really special to me. And so I, I made really good use of that. And I actually hunkered down and I finished writing um, a feature script that I was working on. And then I, I, Hmm. have been wanting to write an episode, I mean, or a, I shouldn't say an episode, a full eight episode season of television for a long time, but I've just been too busy. And I was able to really hunker down and, and get through that. So I was very productive um, at the front of things. Um, and I do think that um, my free time being threatened <laughs> by how much time I had to spend homeschooling my kids and whatnot <laughs> was helpful to keep me focused. Right, as opposed to having a, a bigger chunk of free time mm -hmm. to to fill with like a daunting amount of. That's tasks, the history of my creative journey has been finding ways so that I am not floating in the sea of infinite possibility, which is, in my experience, totally. a paralyzing sea. Um, but working within limits and working within um, boxes, you know, has really helped yeah. me. That's what that's what my my Room One Hundred Four show on HBO is all about. Like. How many stories can you tell yeah. inside of a 400 square foot box? Um, that limit helps keep me creative. And, and you know, when I'm talking to people who are struggling right now or, or even people who haven't really found their creative voice yet and are wondering what to do with themselves, you know, I, um, I'm very encouraging of embracing limits. And if you don't have that many limits, self-imposing them so that you can... Um, beat against those walls and, and find that as an inspiration to be be creative it really it really has worked for me and continues to work for me that's excellent yeah it's such a good um way of putting it the creative paralysis mm -hmm. 
And I feel like we're we're getting to the like the Duplass brothers philosophy towards storytelling, which is like do as much as you can with a limited amount of resources, time, energy, mm-hmm. creativity, whatever it is. Right? And then, you know, the, the next step to that is once you find yourself in a state of abundance, like my brother and I have found ourselves in through our career, you know, starting mm-hmm. off like scrapping together three dollar movies in our kitchen and then. 10 years later, we have studios who want to give us money and are finding ourselves frustrated and paralyzed by it. Well, if you don't have natural limits, then just self-impose them, which is what we do now. You know, yeah. there's this great story about, um, uh, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Igor Stravinsky who was kind of, you know, this just musical genius whirlwind. And, and at a certain point, he realized he had command of how to write for and arrange for any instrument that he wanted and it completely paralyzed him. Uh, he just was ah. creatively gone once he realized that the whole universe was at his fingertips. Mm. And so he would have these uh, gatherings. He'd have people come to his house and on a sheet of paper uh, on the left side, he'd have them each write down any instrument they could think of. Um, they just couldn't repeat the instrument. And then once he'd get a list of say mm. eight to 10 of them, he would cover that up. And then on the right side of the sheet of paper, he'd have people write down a number between one to 10. And then so he would end up Whoa. with this list of, all right, I've got I've got seven oboes, two violins, three cellos, four flugelhorns. <laughs> and then he would have to write something with that no matter what. And, um, cool. and those walls, you know, helped him flourish. Very cool. That's <laughs> amazing. Going back to this idea of the, of the, I want to ask you about inspiration. Mm. If if that's even a term that applies, like if this is even, I want to ask how you get your ideas, but that might be like not the right way of putting it. No, it's it. an like interesting where question. Where the initial germs? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, I, I think about that a lot because um, I think that just my DNA is the type of person that is excitable is a good way to put how I am. Um, things come to me, you'll find me in conversations something will come up, an image will come up, someone will tell a story about their friend, and I'm just an excitable person. Mm. So I am, um, what's the best way to say it? I I am ripe to be inspired just as a person in the world. That being said, I'm also 43 years old and it doesn't come the same way that it used to when I was five. And so there is an active element to trying to get myself into a place where I can be inspired, which I call waiting at the bus. And so you have to do a good job of putting yourself at the bus stop. And for me, those that's, that means reading lots of different kinds of, of books. I, you know, I read a lot of like Hmm. short books so that I can read a lot of different books. And, and, and that means a memoir Hmm. from somebody in the 1900s, a weird sci-fi book from the late fifties, you know, um, a self-help book, a, um, you know, a book about a this Welsh couple who walks for 600 miles around the salt path and 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 just trying to um, bring as many different kinds of ideas and visuals into my world. So I'm like filling up my pot with things that could inspire me. And likewise, uh, from a film watching standpoint, I'm a big Criterion Channel mm-hmm. fan, sometimes just putting on like you know, just a weird Japanese film from 1928 that I've never heard of in the background, uh, just so I I can be exposed to different things is really helpful for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And 
I don't have any deep shame about um, what I call borrowing, what some others might call stealing um, from my from yeah. my great creative uh, mentors that have come before me, you know. So, gotcha. you know, I, I often find myself just saying, well, I'm going to cherry pick this little idea from the 1920s Japanese film and combine that with this thing yeah. I learned from the Salt Path story. And then this help, this self-help cool. book that I read was talking all about, you know, what it means to have non-toxic male platonic relationships. So I'll steal that. And mm-hmm. then I, and I, and I start just putting all these ideas together in a pot and, and that's what helps me, um, stay prolific. And, and I should be clear to say that just because you're creatively prolific doesn't mean you're going to be a happy or be successful. It's just something that happens to work for uh-huh. me, you know? Um, gotcha. and I, I, yeah. I really think that there are lots of ways to to skin the cat of making something relevant and making yourself happy while mm. making it relevant. And I I always tell the story of like, you know, when I was in a group of young filmmakers in the mid two thousands making these you know feature films for under ten thousand dollars, which at the time was relatively unheard of. Um, much more popular right. now with the advent of the democratized technology. Um, but Barry Jenkins was someone that we all fell in love with when he made medicine for melancholy. And I remember yes. it was, you know, seven or eight years later, and I had already produced countless films, directed countless films, t- TV shows. And, and I, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine thinking, God, such a bummer. Like, I really wish we had seen more from Barry. What's, what's he doing? And, you know, and he was taking so long to take his movie. And I really thought he had it wrong. And then I turned around and he made Moonlight, which I was like, well, shit, I'd trade my whole body of work to make, you know, the first act of Moonlight. Um, so so there's yeah. lots of different ways to skin it. You know, he decided to woodshed and make sure he got his opus right. Um, for yeah. me, it's about staying active. It's about collaborating with a lot of different people so I can keep myself fresh by inviting their voice into mine. Um, and I like taking a lot of small swings and, um, and I don't have a lot of masterpieces, but I've made a lot of really cool B pluses that I'm really proud of. And that, that just for my personality keeps me happy. And that's kind of why I stay in that zone. You know, I don't trying to march a B plus towards an A plus is misery for me. It really is. And, and for other people, it's their favorite right. thing to do, you know, but I'm not, I'm mm-hmm. not the scientist in the basement of the laboratory trying to, trying to go from 90 to a hundred. It just, it, it, it'll kill me. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what you're saying too, is that it really is different for everyone. The inspiration process all the way down to the, how to finish a yeah. project process. Abs- abs- absolutely. It depends, you know, and I'm, I'm very interested in um, sort of like, what does it mean to be a well-rounded artist? Um, and I think that a lot of young people are fed something about the word genius that I find to be a little crippling. Um, it makes you feel like, mm-hmm. well, if I can't be the Coen brothers and I can't see it all the way through that the way that they do, um, then maybe I'm just not mm. worth it, you know, or maybe I'm not good enough. And, and I just, yeah. And not going to try. Yeah, and that made me feel that way for a while in my early 20s. And it's a real bummer because I consider myself to be a really 
successful artist, not because I'm making money at it, but because I make tons of pieces of art and some of them connect with people. And I am nowhere near, and this is not false modesty at all. I'm nowhere near the level Hmm. of quote unquote genius or filmmaking acumen as the Coen brothers. My special sauce is realizing that I can only get my projects about 80% there. And I think that in a lot of people, they would think, well, that just means I'm only 80%. I'm a B minus, and so I'm not good enough. And for me, that means, no, that, this is my superpower. I can get things to 80%, and I can do it pretty quickly. And and uh, and then I just invite all the smart people in my life um, to help me and rally around me and, yeah. and, and bring me up. And that doesn't mean I'm less than... The Cohen brothers, it just, I mean, it might mean that, who knows, but it just means I'm, I'm different then. And like, I've kind of, it's not for you. Yeah. I've kind of come to understand that. And, and I, if there's one message I have for, 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 you know, people who are new to the forum, for people who haven't found their voice or people who are feeling maybe insecure or like that, that they don't have it, um, rallying a group of, of, um, like-minded, smart, and even non-like-minded people around you being willing Mm -hmm. to admit that, you don't have it all, you know, going to therapy, learning what your strengths are, checking your ego at the door, realizing that it's okay if you don't have it all um, is, is, is the way forward for most of us who are not the Coen brothers. Sure, sure. No, that's a great way of putting that. I've, I've, we've heard it on this podcast before, like compare and despair and the idea of looking at someone else's success yeah. and wondering why you don't have that. Yeah. But you're saying, look inward, know thyself, (laughs) like work on what your strengths are and and go from there. And I love this advice about, yeah, find your collaborators that are going to help you with the areas that maybe you need help with. Yeah, there's this thing that happened to me and Jay on accident. And it's kind of like if anyone who knows anything about us has heard me rattle the story forever. So forgive me, I'll tell it quickly. But it was the moment that we made our first you know, accidental success for three dollars in our kitchen. in our twenties that it was our first short that went to Sundance and really opened up things for us. Mm -hmm. But what I don't often is is called, this is John. That's right. Yeah. And it's free on YouTube and you can see it and it's, you know, it's a mess Mm -hmm. and all the things that it should be. (laughs) Um, but one thing I don't often talk about was, um, sort of the way to get to that short for us that happened on accident, but I think you can do on purpose, uh, reverse engineering it is, it stemmed from a really shameful, embarrassing conversation that Jay and I were having about feeling like we weren't good enough, feeling like we were going to be failures. And then Jay giggling while he was almost kind of crying, but also giggling while he admitted to me the emotional um, depravity and just depression he (laughs) experienced while trying to record the outgoing greeting of his answering machine, not being able to represent okay. himself correctly and having a breakdown and how funny he thought that was and how he realized that, you know, only a person with his middle-class privilege would see that as the ultimate tragedy. And we, and we thought that, <laughs> okay. that, you know, if, if you came from that place of, of say middle-class privilege, that, that meant our voice wasn't as important as those who knew you know, bigger and harder things in life. And once we realized that that was what we uniquely had to offer, that sense of humor about Mm -hmm. it, that awareness that it wasn't, you know, objectively a big problem, but subjectively it was our hugest problem, leaning into it, making fun of ourselves at the same time, owning it, 
if you look at our work, it all stems from that. Um, and that moment when we were at the bus stop together trying to figure it out and we yeah. found it, you know, and, um, Tom Petty has this mm. incredible quote where everybody says, Jesus Christ, you look at your greatest hits record, you got like 25 hit songs. Like, how did you write all those amazing hit songs? What's the formula, you know? And in his wonderful Tom Petty way, he's just like, well, I was at, I was at the bus stop, you know? And they're like, what do you mean? It's just like, well, how are you supposed to catch the bus if you don't wait at the bus stop? And what he basically uh. came to say is just like, yeah, when people were out at parties and doing other things, whatever, like, I stayed close to my guitar. I kept it in my hand and I was ready for it when it came. Mm. And, uh, you know, it doesn't mean you can't cool. have a life, but I think it means being open and being aware and being perceptive about what's your, what's your mm. special sauce, you know? Cause there really is something inside mm. of everyone that like only you're able to tell that story in that special way. Totally. That's, that's so excellent. I want to ask too about you mentioned all all, the, all of these little swings. Yeah. Do you ever find that they bleed together, or like how do you switch from working to one to working to the other? Is it a complete gear shift? Do they maybe sometimes inform each other in good ways? They do inform each other in good ways, and sometimes in bad ways. To be honest with you, sometimes I will okay. be in a mode, um, or I will be working on so many different things that I will find myself writing a similar dynamic that I happen to be currently yeah. obsessed with into two different projects. Um, mm -hmm. And I have my homies, you know, Jay and Mel who runs our company. And we have, you know, mm -hmm. six other incredible employees now who help me and back me up with that because um, I'm the speed guy, you know, I'm reckless, I am fast <laughs> and nobody can bulldoze through the brick wall of writer's block like I can. Whenever a project needs to be cracked, they give it to me and I put my helmet on and I just fucking crash through it. And it's not always pretty and it's not always good, but I can always get us through the first step. And so that is for whatever reason what I have identified, you know? And, um, and so as long as I have people to help me clean that up, um, it allows me to be fearless and not have to edit myself. And that's been a, a real key to my creative process is I think anyone who has written a script right now and is listening to this can identify with the moment when you've written half a page in final draft or in your chosen screenwriting software and you find your eyes drifting up to the top, reading what you wrote and getting disgusted with yourself, losing all confidence and closing the computer <laughs> and going to yep. watch HGTV. I mean, it's look, it's right. it happens. And so I've employed a lot of rules in my process to try and avoid that, you know, which is I don't allow myself to Those read. Limits. Uh, yeah. I don't allow myself to read when I'm writing. I won't, I won't do it. Okay. If I'm feeling super insecure, I will actually speak my script into a handheld recorder, even using the voice memo app on my iPhone um, right. okay. so that it's a nonlinear form and I can't look at it and I can't go back and edit it. And I just got to blaze forward, you know, mm. again, it's, it is to your point tied to that element of, of working with limits and, and mm. es escaping the critical part of your brain into the dreamier deep sea fishing, uh, creative side of your brain. Um, yeah. and then once you're done with that, then you go back on the other side and, and you clean it up. But the, the two don't exist well together at the same time, in my opinion. No. Yeah. And it seems that most people get caught in the writing or going back to rewrite rather than just finishing a draft. You got to finish the draft first. All right. In my opinion, that works really well for me. I know others who write differently and they're, they're doing Again, great, depends. but I find if you are struggling and you need a first step, the best thing you can do for yourself is get some four by six index cards 
write the name of the scene on the front of it, write a brief sentence or two sentence description of the scene on the back of it. And then Mm. those are the major scenes of your movie, stack them up in order and then start reading them like a little flip book. And then you will know, oh, I need a little interstitial scene here. Oh, I need a little glue scene here. Oh, you know what? This scene is exactly like this Mm. other scene. Let me combine them. And you get that little stack together. Um, And then once you got that, you got to barf a draft. You got to barf the whole thing um, and allow your dialogue to be crappy, allow your scene description to be crappy. Gotcha. But if you write quickly, you'll have good pacing because your body has watched so many movies. <laughs> it knows when your to body, write. Absolutely. Your body knows what to do. It really does. And you yeah. got to put yeah. your brain away and your body who has watched Splash a hundred times knows when it's time. <laughs> For the funny and the speed and the montage and the two-person intimate scene and time to bring in Walter Cornbluth for some comedic effect, you know, you really got to let that take over, in my opinion. That's, That's what works for me. That, and that goes back to what you're saying about inspiration, where it's, you're feeding your own brain a huge variety of planting seeds, planting seeds here and there. You never know what's going to like burst through the soil, I guess. That is exactly right. That is what I need. Some people already have an appetite to take in all the various and sundry books, music, movies, whatever. If I don't mm-hmm. actively curate a variety for myself, I'll end up taking in mm. the same kind of thing, which is the thing that I like. And so I have to push myself a little yeah. bit and um, be a little more conscious about what I put in there. And that's that, that really is great advice. Um, I was just wondering, I've maybe always been wanting to ask this, what is writer's block? Mm. Like, wh- how does it work? What, what do you think of it as? Is it that creative paralysis you were talking about? I think writer's block is the natural state of a human being, and there's nothing to be ashamed of. I think okay. writer's block is not the anomaly. Writer's flow is the anomaly. <laughs> it is the state you want to try okay. to achieve. That is because we are insecure. We're nervous. We're not sure if we're good mm. enough. So we're always in a state of writer's block. So I I think trying to understand it, at least for me, as when I wake up, I'm blocked. When I, unless I do something to unblock myself, I am going to be blocked. And then you have to get active and then you have to find your ways there. And, And I think it makes it a little easier on you if you frame it that way so that you're not feeling like you're doing something wrong for being blocked. You're actually doing something incredibly right. Congratulations if you got yourself unblocked. And be and just be forgiving of yourself if you are blocked. A hundred percent, you know, and <laughs> and I think that you know there's a lot of little tools you can employ to to help with with quote unquote block or whatever you want to call the the inability to be able to write freely and well all the time, which is the natural state of human beings. And you know, I, I have a couple of little tricks. I always make sure I have something that I call my affair script that is standing by because you're usually in a relationship with one of your scripts. That's a lot like a marriage. That is Uh something you're willing to work for. That is 51% worth it, but a huge pain in your ass, but you don't want to die alone. So I'll make it work. Um, (laughs) That is your marriage script and you should keep working on that. But every now and then you need to be able to run away and you know, this sounds terrible, but uh, have a little affair <laughs> with this other script that has no sure. that has no pressure. Um, that you're not you don't, gears. you don't even have a vision for what it's supposed to be. It's just this wild okay. side of yourself. And every now and then, your affair script will turn into your next marriage script. Who knows? Um, okay. Or or yeah. or it was only there just to bring you back to your marriage and make you appreciate 
uh, where you came from in the first place. But it's very important to have, I think, a couple of projects going um, because there are certain times, I think a lot of writers will identify this, when you sit down to write and you're just like, this scene is the monster scene. It's the big scene between my two leads and I don't have it right now. I'm not feeling in tune enough. I'm not feeling deep enough. I'm too tired. Mm -hmm. You need low hanging fruit around to get you ramped up and warmed up. So it's always good if you have, Fantastic. you know, another script that needs like a little light dialogue pass that you can, mm. when you don't have the courage to do the big thing, you can be like, well, I'm just going to fish for minnows over here for a second until I get warmed up. Mm-hmm. And treat it as a warm up, and and kind of switch gears back and forth. Yeah, that that helps me a lot. And certain days, cool. you know, you got to know. You're just like, I don't have it. And and if I dive in today, and I've already got sixty like good pages going, I'm probably going to write some garbage. So I'm going to go do something else. And I think that's okay too. Right. In that process of maybe it's an affair script, or maybe it's an idea that you know is going to be a marriage script or whatever. At what point do you know the medium? Like, is it Early on, this is a film. Early on, this is a TV show. Like, how adaptable is that? Usually, I know what it is before I start to write it. Um, okay. I, it's been very rare for me that I've had something that I thought was a movie turn into a TV show or vice versa. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's been interesting for me that I'll, I'll bring up now, because I think it's, it, it is related to where we are with the pandemic and whatnot, is um, mm-hmm. I have been doing some reverse engineering of projects with either people who are mentoring or, you know, just newer writers to the process who are looking for something that they can do right now, Yeah. which I'm a very big fan of like, what's the sword in your hand? Don't go looking for other swords, swing the shit that's in your hand. Um, mm. and, and the sword that's in your hand right now is the ability to make a narrative audio podcast. Um, because okay. any writer I know has at least a few mm. actor friends who are bored and sitting at home and you can yes. write something and you and I are on a zoom right now recording it and the quality is decent enough. So you yes. can take your feature script and you can reverse engineer it, um, into, into a narrative form. audio podcast into that form Amazing. and, and yeah. make something. And at the very least you'll learn something about your script. Um, next yeah. step up from there would be, whoa, I actually made something decent and my script works to give you confidence to move forward and actually make the movie when the time is right. Or, or even better, you release mm. it uh, somewhere and someone listens to it and likes it and you can use it as a calling card for when you want to make your, yeah. make your movie version of it. You know? So I, I think that's a really good, a good thing to be working on right now for people who are looking for something to do. That is really exciting. I haven't, I haven't heard about that yet. Like, do you think that this pandemic is going to yield like, I don't know, I've been waiting forever for the first big like hit fiction podcast. Yeah. Like, we've had fit like nonfiction, of course, but like, where's the fictional serial that's going to really go viral? I think no one knows the form yet. I think that I'm trying to do right. it and I'm not really doing it that well right now. Um, I'm not <laughs> honestly giving it a ton of time, but like, it's definitely, right. it's definitely a new form and people are investing in it. Like, People are very aware that this could be something cool. So it's kind of fun to be at the at a new beginning of a form. I mean, look, we've had yeah. radio plays for years, so it's not like this hasn't been done before. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I, I like that it is wide open and that there's no one dominating the form yet. And I like that they're cheap to make because that means that 
um, it's the Wild West. It's anybody's game. If you are, so cool. you know, if you have literally, you know, iMovie, GarageBand, any sort of recording device, you can make like the next great narrative audio podcast that blows everybody's minds for zero dollars, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. and then I, I, I know there's a little bit of hyperbole there, but, but I do believe that, um, there's, uh, well, it's just as a, you know, to a certain degree, like if you want to write, you know, game of Thrones, you need a certain amount of reputation and money to get that made. And, and, and it's just going to be hard if you're a 14 year old kid in the suburbs of Detroit to get noticed, <laughs> but that same yeah. kid can make this thing and put it out. And if it's great, it will blow up. I know it. Yeah. Very cool. I got to ask you too about, of course, you've talked about this before, but writing versus producing and, mm -hmm. and you've directed too. Uh, are those separate hats? Is that an example of switching gears or do you guys see it as kind of all, all one? You are, you are filmmakers. Yeah, I do see it as, uh, as all one in that the way that I build my projects are, are quite uh, often reverse engineered to fit into a certain scope or model of doing things that I know can get made. And, you know, I, this can be a little tricky for people to wrap their heads around, but I really try to preach the, the power of understanding money and business as it relates to creativity in order to foster mm -hmm. your creativity and put you in the right space. You know, um, okay. there, there's an argument that's just like, you know what, just follow your heart write what you want to write. And if it's great, it's, it, it's great and it'll survive. And I respect yeah. that decision. But if that again happens to be a $120 million epic and no one knows who you are and you don't right. have an agent or anyone to get that to, and you can't like put a script like out, like you can put like a podcast out, like you may not be able to get anybody to, to pay attention to you or even see it yeah. in the first place. So I'm always designing things that can be made modestly so that when I mm -hmm. ask for the money to make them, I don't have to have an extreme amount of success, popularity, or box office dollars in order to pay that money back and keep going. Or even better, now that I am where I am now, um, and I have my own money, I write things that I can make and pay for myself and then just take out to market to sell. So that it puts me in a position of never getting burned out, frustrated, or jaded mm -hmm. that the industry won't make my things. Because mm -hmm. I put myself in the driver's seat to say, oh, well, I'll just make my own things. And I know what you're thinking right now if you listen to this. Well, well, congratulations. You're Mark Duplass. You have money and everybody's <laughs> paying attention to you. And that is true. But I was also 25 years old in my kitchen with a camera making a $3 movie. And I yep. built this thing from scratch. And so I, I do think that, that that really is the answer. And, and when you ask, you know, is the writer separate from the producer and the director and the actor? Um, now it is, but um, in the beginning, okay. it was always the same thing and always asking the mm. question, what can I make now with what I have in my hand? Um, mm -hmm. So the production mm. scope was the first thing in place of $3, a kitchen, me and my brother. That's first. Great. Yeah. So now I will write something and act in something and direct it in a way that fits inside of that budget, you know? So, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I'm always encouraging people to, if you want to write that pipe dream movie or TV show that costs a lot of money to make, you should absolutely do it. But you should do yourself the favor of having a counterbalanced project that can be made absolutely cheaply and without anybody else's help. Amazing. And this was actually on my list of questions. 
And you're mentioning like the idea of the $3 movie. Obviously, technology has changed. You mentioned the technology aspect of this too. What specific equipment should aspiring filmmakers be investing in right now? Like, is it truly all accessible? Is it truly all affordable? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a certain amount of privilege involved in being able to have um, a smartphone or being able to have some form of a tablet. But in Mm -hmm. in general, for me... um, the best the best thing is like a couple of generations old iPad because they're really, really cheap. You can get them for like 100, 150 bucks off of eBay if you're really struggling. Um, and that thing is great because it has a decent camera on it. The audio capabilities are pretty good. Um, and then obviously you have iMovie and you have GarageBand on there. So as a musician, as a filmmaker, you can do a lot with that. You know, the newer iPhone cameras are pretty incredible. Um Right. And but, you know, those things are like a thousand dollars and it's not necessary to, to have that because mm-hmm. don't forget okay. the first movie I made that went to Sundance was my parents standard definition, uh, 30 frame NTSC home camcorder with a dead pixel in the center of it. You know, so at the end <laughs> of the day, I, I, I just want to stress to people um, it's a very common thing to. Uh, use your fear in a subconscious way to convince yourself that you don't have the tools you need to make your movie and that's why you're not succeeding. Uh Um, And look, that's real. I'm not knocking that. But I think that one of the first crutches people use is, well, yeah, I don't have the gear. I don't have the cash. I don't have the thing. And so Mm -hmm. I I try to encourage people to see past that and, again, use that thing that that is in your hand. And, and most people that I do meet, you know, have some version um, of a tablet or a smartphone device to, mm-hmm. to do. And, and I, you know, I, I get it that some people don't want to make the kinds of things that I make, which are, look, they're, they're interpersonal stories where cinema is not the most important thing. It's all about the faces mm-hmm. and the words and the feelings for me. Um, but I would also, again, counter argue well, there's a time and a place for talent, Terrence Malick, you know, 2.35 mm-hmm. CinemaScope filmmaking. And that time and place mm-hmm. is not when you don't have any money for it. You got to build yourself to that spot. Yeah. So, you know, use use what's around the corner. That's that's really what it comes down to. Right. Or, or quarantined at home. Yes. Now it's, now it's <laughs> not the time to be filming it. A big epic, as you're saying. Yes, yes. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Apple TV Plus original series, The Morning Show. This drama series explores the cutthroat world of morning news and the lives of the people who help America wake up in the morning, told through the lens of two complicated women working to navigate the minefield of high-octane jobs while facing crises in both their personal and professional lives. Starring Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell, Billy Crudup, Gugu Mbatha-Ra, and Mark Duplass. For your Emmy consideration in all eligible categories, including Outstanding Drama Series, visit fyc.appletvplus.com. Um, of course, we. I want to ask you too about the other hat, which is the acting hat. Yes. Um, and I actually do think The Morning Show is, is a great way to talk about this because as you mentioned, you're not involved. It's one of the rare instances that Mark Duplass is not writing, directing, producing, <laughs> and you are just acting. I'm wondering, are there instances of acting jobs that then inform the other areas or I guess inspire the other yes, areas? Yes, 100%. Uh, I've learned so much through the years. I mean, I remember you know, being on The League even, which is an all improvised show. And I used, you know, I yeah. still love improvising on my shows. And the, while the tone of what The League does is so different from what I do, I remember Jeff Schaefer, our creator, every now and then we'd be like 
doing a uh, kind of expository show up to a front door scene. And he'd just be like, let's not improvise this because we just got to get this done real mm. quickly. And, okay. and I realized like, oh yeah, if you're doing something short and perfunctory, there's no need to like, let's open it up and see what happens. Like, no, no, just move nail it down yeah, yeah. and move on. And I was like, oh, that's mm-hmm. great. And I learned that from him. I, honestly, I probably learned the most recently from being on the morning show. Um, yeah. And and the amount of plot that these people use and the amount of storylines to keep mm. an hour-long show going is just insane. And in particular, you know, Carrie Aaron, our showrunner, she's such a wordsmith, which I am not as a writer. I'm always relying on my actors to either improve upon my dialogue or in some <laughs> cases make it up because we're shooting off of an outline. And I've really seen the power of um, using that wordsmithness. That's not even a word, but I'll make it up. Wordsmithness. Sure. Uh, wordsmithosity. Um you know, for, for like our incredible orator performers, like Billy Crudup in particular. I mean, he's so amazing with that. And then, and then using a performer like me who inevitably kind of improvises around some of those words and shaggies them up a little bit. And then Mm. it, it it almost has come to define our characters and and how we are. Um, Mm. So it's, it's been really, I guess the, the biggest eye opening thing for me is that when you come from a place like I do, which is I had a lot of failure for a long time, and then I had a lightning bolt of success in that kitchen with the $3 film. What that right. does to you is it makes you like a wounded person who doesn't want to stray far at all from the only thing that's made him successful. It makes you say, <laughs> I'm only going to do this because this is the only thing that worked. And, and it makes you very protective of that. And so when I'm on set as an actor around other people, I pick up bits and pieces and I say, oh, you know what? I can use this and incorporate it and bring it back to what I'm doing and expand my world. Um, and still it can be good and it still can be unique to me. Um, so that's yeah. kind of that's kind of how the process goes for me as an actor on sets that I'm not creatively in charge of. Can I ask, especially just like since you were in the midst of season two, this is way too specific a question, I realize, but what have you learned from Jennifer Aniston? <laughs> because... She's, uh, you share the most scenes with her and she's giving this extraordinary performance. And I feel like you two come from very different backgrounds, but have amazing chemistry. Oh God. I love her. First of all, I just, she's my favorite new friend. And I just felt deeply in love (laughs) with her as did my wife and my children. I mean, she's just (laughs) incredible. And I learned so many things from her, which is, um, I think as you, um, do more of this work in the industry, as you get known for a certain thing, me at my small level of success, you start to get um, a little bit guarded of what you do well, and you want to make sure that you can repeat it so that you can stay successful. For an actor like Jen, she faces that pressure times a thousand, and she just throws it away. She doesn't give a shit about it. She's like a little kid on set, constantly insecure, trying to figure out what's going on. You know, oh my God, does this line sound stupid? What am I saying? She's so open and pure in that way Mm. that um, honestly, after all these years, she has no right to be. She should be, you know, a a guarded, cold movie star is what she should be. (laughs) And and her freewheeling, beautiful spirit is like infectious Mm. to me. Um, So I've learned from her, just like be a kid, admit your faults, don't worry about when you're not getting it right. You know, if you're feeling insecure, ask about it. You know, mm. she's just 
it, it really is wonderful to to be with her in those scenes. So I'm I am, you know, I know that we will be doing a lot together as well in season in season two. And I just like she's one of my favorite scene partners I think ever. That's yeah. And and speaking of like, because with TV especially, your first impression of a character is often ends up being different. Was there um, season one premiere to finale, but now also with season two, like what have you learned about Chip? Where has Chip evolved? What, who was he before and then after? That is a really good question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen all the scripts for season two. <laughs> it's still early. Right. <laughs> um, so I don't have those answers. Um, That's the it, trick with TV. Yeah. I feel pretty you know, solid about where, where Chip lands at the end of season one. And it's a different kind of character than I've ever played. I've, I've played the moral center before of something. Mm. Um, but I've never played a moral center that was actually kind of different from me. Um, and I think Chip mm-hmm. is still part of the old male guard to a certain degree. And he and he was complicit gotcha. in a lot of that bullshit. But I think his heart was in the right place. He was just, mm-hmm. you know, uh, emotional evolvements 10 years behind, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was really interesting to play someone who I felt was heart is in the right place. But sometimes his actions weren't things that I would do or even necessarily approve of um and so that mm-hmm. was that was really kind of eye-opening to play um you know and i think that in general the the thing that makes chip a character that people have really connected with because honestly people have connected with him a lot a lot more than i than i thought they they might or would um it's been okay. an, it's been an oddly i, I get stopped a lot on the street uh, or i used mm. to um uh, from people who are just saying, oh my God, you know, Chip is just like, he is the heart and the soul of the show. And I've been thinking like, really, mm-hmm. what is it about him that, that is that, you know? And uh, if I had That's to, interesting. yeah, I think if I had to venture a guess, it's that, um, a lot of the people in these worlds of power, they have to move with certainty. Cause if you don't move with certainty, you're dead. Even if you're not mm. sure what you're doing, you have to comport certainty. <laughs> and um, mm. Chip, uh, the one thing he definitely shares with me is he mm. has had certainty beat out of him. I had it beat out of me in my early failures as a creative artist. Mm. I have it continually beaten out of me every day when I try my best to make something good and I realize I can't get it there and I need my smarter friends to help me get it there. And Chip has also mm. done that. And I think I brought some of that to the role, but it was also implicit in the writing, you know, mm. he is a man who is trying to hold up a daily live television show, which is hard enough on its own in the midst, you know, of a, uh, a you know, pretty insane controversy happening at the same time. Um, and so there's inherently a humility to him when you're just getting beat up like that day after day. And I think that that is something that has resonated even more than I hoped it would. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. There's also just something about it's sort of it feels an, like an anomaly that he's an executive producer of this successful show, but he never appears to be very powerful. Yeah. In, yeah. as you say, an environment that's all about power. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting thing. It's like I when I talk a lot to uh, young directors, I think the uh, it's a common misconception that when people ask you a, a question on set, you need to have a really confident answer and bring it quickly. Um, Because if you don't, you won't be a good leader of the ship and the ship will fall apart. But I really Mm. believe the opposite. You know, Um, I've made that mistake before of trying to um, 
comport myself with false confidence sort in order to inspire bluff. confidence. Yeah, you bluff. Yeah. And um, yeah. and it, 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 I don't think it works. I think it makes everybody feel insecure. Mm. It makes feel like they can't admit when they don't know something. And I think the right. best answers you can give, you know, as a as a director, when you're not sure is, hmm, I haven't actually thought about it that way. That's a really great question. Yeah. What do you think? Honesty. Yeah. And then you give yeah. them a chance to step in and rise up and and, um, and it only took me about 15 years to figure that one out. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, and to the extent that you have a character building process, I mean, Billy Crudup actually on this podcast spoke a little bit about kind of basing his character, not basing, basing, but, you know, getting inspired by real life people or types of people or other characters is that ever a part of your process as an actor? It's not. And it might be just because I'm not a traditionally trained actor and I never learned those processes. Mm-hmm. Or it might be because I am, uh, I'm a little nervous to get too intellectual about anything that is uh, a creative venture because I find the more I'm in my head, uh, the less well I do for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to be a little bit more instinctual about it, a little bit more mm-hmm. feel-based. Um, and... Um, you know, when, when it came time for, I guess, sort of digging in on Chip, the only sort of intellectual decision I made is that um, I want to make this guy in a position of extreme power. And I want you to be thinking, how the hell did a guy like this get in power? Um, and I wanted to sort of like uh, portray him as, as a person that felt confusing that he would be there in the first place. That's excellent. And that's, yeah, that's part of what makes the performance so funny. Well, Mark, thank you. As I knew this would be, this is all so, so great. Can I ask you some very backstagey questions that I am sure we have asked you before? Let's do it. I'll have new answers because I just make them up every time. So it'll be great. <laughs> well, this one's tricky to make up. How did you get your, do you know, remember how you initially got your SAG card? Oh my God. I think it was on hump day, which, uh, was mm-hmm. a SAG low budget agreement movie we made for like $15,000. And, and we were planning on just like doing it like we always did. None of my friends were SAG. None of us were in any unions. We would just go make movies. And we hired Josh mm-hmm. Leonard. And he was like, I'm in the union. And we're all like, oh, shit. We, we could get in trouble. Does this have to be a union movie? And then we spent, you know, a couple of weeks researching what to do. And I think, I think <laughs> I was definitely tapped Hartley in because it was a SAG production. And whether I got the card there or not, I'm not sure. But I think that was probably it. Okay, cool. Um, we got to ask about auditions too. Specifically, your relationship to audition as an actor. Have you? How many have you have you been on? Like, are, do you consider yourself someone who's maybe good at auditioning? I am not good at auditioning, and I know okay. a lot of actors say that with false humility. But that's no false humility. I'm not good <laughs> in a room, and I've never been good in a room. I took an audition okay. class when I first moved to to LA after I was signed with uh, what was just the William Morris uh, agency, and I was terrible in the audition class. And um, mm. you know, circling the beats and these are my intentions, and I just it was all not right for me. Um, <laughs> and um, and I felt really insecure in the rooms, honestly. And I felt like it was it was always a hard process for me. I've gotten a little bit better at it recently and i think that i have the privilege of being better at it because now people know who i am and so Mm. when i go in there i get the chance to get a few more takes to talk about it a little bit the casting directors Mm. are more generous with me with their reads and things like that so i think it Mm. has caught up with me more than i have caught up with it um in in that way um but man i i 
I don't have great advice other than I do feel like self-taping is something that obviously people mm-hmm. are going to have to get used to now, but it's a great thing to do. Like, why would you want mm-hmm. one chance in the room when you can get five chances at home to get it right? Um, and I feel mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, if you are an insecure auditioner, like I was, um, self-taping helped me a lot to get over some of those fears. And if you could go back in time and give, I mean, that, that younger version of yourself, that era of your life where you were taking an audition class, um, if you could give that person one piece of advice, what would it be? Don't worry about this audition class. Go home and write yourself a role that you can star in and be great in. A five-minute role and shoot that thing over and over and over Mm. again. Every weekend, uh, make it a free movie. Make it a a scene between you and another person until it's great. Get it into a film festival. Go tour around with it. Meet other filmmakers. Make more movies. Get yourself to the place where you create your own work. And then you either won't have to audition or you won't be as worried about the auditions because you'll have your own ability to do your work. Mm, pure gold. Thank you. That was pure, pure gold. Um, okay. And then last question, the one that I've, I'm just super excited to ask you specifically about, because I'm also pretty sure that the answer to this must change every day. What is one performance that every actor should see and why? Mm, that's a really great question. Um, there are so many that, uh, that inspire me. Um, the one that is, I guess, unexpected is, is because it's not a performance. It's a, it's a, it's a documentary, but Mark, Mark Borchardt, who is the lead, um, subject, uh, in the documentary American movie, which was made in the mid nineties is this, um, struggling would be independent filmmaker. And he is, on paper, one of the least likable people on the planet. Um, and yet you find yourself rooting for him and, and kind of falling in love with him. And it is a masterclass, in my opinion, in um, how to uh, achieve sympathy from your audience. It's just uh, it's just quite unbelievable. So while it's not a performance, I think that there's a lot to, to be learned there. There's still a relationship with an audience there. Yeah, yeah. He's aware and he's a filmmaker and the way that he talks to the camera is there's bluffing right. and and uh, and there's um, chest puffing and all the wonderful things. Mm. It's really it's really educational. That's great advice. Like don't you don't it does not have to be a scripted performance that can inspire you as an artist. Hundred percent. Performance, quote unquote performance, yeah. Exactly. Well, gosh, Mark, thank you so much. Uh, this was just a masterclass, truly, <laughs> and how to navigate Hollywood before the virus and during the virus and everything in between. So thank you so much for joining us. Excellent. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. In the Envelope is recorded at Lotus Productions and Hyperbolic Audio in New York City and Soundbox LA, Mark Grouse Studios, and Buzzies in Los Angeles. Thanks as always to our producer extraordinaire, Jamie Muffet, and to the team at Backstage, Samantha Sherlock, Mark Stinson, Caitlin Watkins, and of course, Casey Howe. Visit Backstage.com, and don't forget, you can subscribe to Backstage by using the code ENVELOPE at checkout for a free trial. That's right, 100% free. For more exclusive content, join us on Facebook and Twitter at In The Envelope, and subscribe, share, and leave a comment. Who would you like us to interview next? Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another glimpse in the envelope.